So again, welcome to uh, part two. Um, to my right here is Robin Guillen. To my left, Glenn Hill. My name is Jacques Ferdown. I'm the executive director of a nonprofit called Inside Out, as in having an insight. And I talked to Jack about this evening. He said, talk a little bit about the history of the whole thing. So I'm going to do that for a little bit, and then these gentlemen will contribute. And then we thought it would be wise to have a Q&A, because you may have some questions. So uh, I've been working in prisons for about 22 years. And uh, it was Jack Cornfield who made a call 22 years ago to the community saying, you know, we should do something. Visit our prisons. So quite a few people showed up. But over time, uh, that group became not so big. And I, I didn't care. You know, there was less meetings to go to. And I didn't mind. But I stuck with it. And my, my desire was to get into San Quentin. And at the time, it was about as hard to get in as it was to get out of San Quentin. That's changed radically. There is hundreds of people going and volunteering in San Quentin right now. So when we started, we started quite naive, actually, thinking, oh, you know, these guys have time. We know about mindfulness. It'll be like a monastery. <clears throat> There's a couple of good stories to tell about how green I was in those assumptions. Um, so instead we started asking what is needed and kind of leave our ideology at home. <clears throat> so what was needed was for there to be a violence prevention program. There were 6,000 prisoners. There, there was no violence prevention program. So we started that. And we got to Pioneer, and when there was a, a female warden named Jeannie uh, Woodford, she really uh, got us going, kind of backed us up. And so we began with a program of restorative justice, where surrogate victims would come in, people that had suffered similar crimes, someone in the family murdered or raped or you know, severe crimes. And we'd set up dialogues. Um, we began to teach yoga classes, mindfulness classes. We started a garden, the inside garden. The neat thing with the garden was that everything in prison is still segregated. You know, you eat, exercise, and pretty much move within your own racial group. But nobody knew what to do with the garden. Like, was it a black garden or... Was it a brown garden? Or... So the garden became sort of a place where racial politics didn't fly. Uh, we were instrumental in starting a program where veterans were healing veterans. You know, lots of our veterans have problems. There's actually more veterans that committed suicide from the Afghani-Iraq wars than died in battlefield. Uh, 
um, we have a program called Brothers Keepers on suicide prevention, rape trauma counseling, and uh, hospice care. So it's all very exciting, but something was missing, something about what would become a comprehensive offender accountability program, sort of the best practices, everything we'd learned in one methodology. So that became the GRIP program, Guiding Rage into Power. Four elements to it. One is developing mindfulness. Two is cultivating and developing emotional intelligence. Three is uh, violence prevention, transforming violence, understanding what it is and knowing how to stop it. And the last one was understanding victim impact. So this uh, program started six years ago. It's a year-long program. Um, We've taught it to about 600 life sentence prisoners. Uh, 161 were released by the parole board in those six years. That's a high number. And none of them have come back to prison, like not one. So we're quite excited about that. And um, it cost about $75,000 to incarcerate a prisoner in California, which is about twice as high as other states. And, uh, and so if you do the math, right, you do 161 times $75,000. That's a little over $12 million annually that you save as a taxpayer. While we're improving public safety. So we're, uh, we have big plans with this program. And uh, looking forward to replicate it. There's a team of about 27 people. Most all of them have a mindfulness practice that are going in sometimes rather remote prisons. Um, Dealing with a much forsaken sort of forgotten population. You know, we talk about death row. There's also something that you rightfully could call life row. Over 30,000 life sentence prisoners with parole in California alone. So we're uh, kind of thrilled to be uh, serving that community because nobody else is. Um, We have over a thousand guys on the waiting list, 1,123 actually. So we're uh, looking to grow the program, hired a new director, building an infrastructure, kind of growing up a little bit, getting more serious, and offering this to the world. And this, in many ways, is kind of a uh, mixture of transformational awareness techniques, some psychological interventions, most all of them privy to people like us, upper white middle class, recast in their language, implementation that works for them, 
So kind of serving a multi-ethnic incarcerated population that would likely not have access to these teachings. So you can think of that, you know, I, I'm always very grateful to whoever introduced me to the Dharma. And you can be one of those people as well, right? That chooses to introduce the Dharma to folks that may not have access. So, uh, on my journeys in there, I encountered Glenn. And maybe Glenn can talk a little bit about how we met and uh, what you did with what you learned. Do you need to? Do you need to put that on? <laughs> That'd be quite a, no. quite a contribution. No. 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 Uh, yeah, I guess that worked, huh? <laughs> they all got scared. <laughs> yeah, my, anyway, my name is my name is Glenn. Um, I was born in San Francisco. Um, I was raised in prison. We must say I was raised in prison is because. Um, I spent most of my life in and out of jail. I think from um, 1967 all the way to 2016, I have never spent a whole year on the streets. And um, I spent a lot of time incarcerated. Um, I went to prison in 1975 for a crime I didn't commit but a lifestyle that led me to be convicted of a crime I didn't commit I I, I was a horrible person and for that I apologize to everybody in this room that ever been victimized by anybody because I know now that um, my actions caused a lot of people incarceration too. You know, may not have been incarcerated in a prison, but incarcerated in their homes, incarcerated, you know, not wanting to go do things because of the lifestyle that I lived and I knew I learned a lot from it. Um... No, I said this, but I'm kind of working it out of my mind how it needs to be said. But anyway, uh, I went to prison in 1975. I went there for a murder that I didn't commit, but the authorities felt that I knew about the murder, even though they knew I didn't commit the murder. So I was acquitted of the use of a firearm, which saying that I didn't kill nobody, but they felt I had knowledge of the crime. I didn't feel bitter. I didn't feel angry. 
because I didn't know no better. Because like I said, I spent my life in jail. So I didn't really know no better until I started doing programs. What led me to do programs was I was so messed up inside my body and my mind that the uh, psychs, psychiatrists and doctors and everybody said I should never get out of prison no matter how long I've been in prison. Not because I was a violent person or, or an evil person, but because I was an uncaring person. You know, I was, I was a selfish person. I was a person that um, was caught up in my own thoughts and my own mind, making myself a victim when I really wasn't a victim. I, I was making myself believe that people were saying things, that I had to have a certain image, that I had to be this way. I'm telling myself all this stuff like I was reading everybody's mind on what I felt that they was thinking about me and I took it personally. And uh, I lived according to the stories I was telling myself in my mind, but they wasn't true because I don't know what nobody else was thinking, but I didn't know it at the time. And um, I met Jock and things like two, like, 2012, I believe, and uh, he changed my life. He, he really did what nobody else could do, you know. I mean, my parents, psychiatrists, doctors, judges, lawyers, police officers, none of them, they, they didn't know how to cure me. They didn't know how to open my mind up. But when I met Jock, it was like a, a spiritual awakening for me. It was, like, it was like something I needed because he gave me the the feeling that he cared. He cared. You know, he believed in me. You know, he he um, he really, really, and truly believed in me. He allowed me to be myself and express myself while showing me my mistakes and the things that I was telling myself in a gentle way. He showed me that it was all in my mind and I listened to him because I believed that he really, really cared and it changed my life. I started, I went to GRIP. I graduated from GRIP in 2013 and by the time that year was up, my whole life changed. I was set in meditation. Today, I can meditate, and I don't have stories that I'm telling myself because I learned to accept. I learned to accept people. I learned to accept things. I learned to accept. I learned acceptance. So I didn't have no perception of nothing because I learned to accept everything as it is and knowing that everything is what it's supposed to be, doing what it's supposed to be doing, and not the way that I think that it should be, it should be, but the way it is. And uh, it made my life a lot easier. When I meditate now, I 
walk down the street. I don't look at people and say, oh, this person right here is fat. Oh, this person is skinny. Now I look, I walk down the street and I just see everything and everybody exactly as it is, energy, you know, strength, you know, connections, energy. And um, I'm walking, I can feel the ground on my feet. I can feel my toes digging in the ground. You know, I realize how much weight the ground is carrying, the purpose of the ground, the purpose of the trees, you know, the purpose of, of, of you know, everything got a purpose. Everything is here for us. Well, for me, I feel like the transportation, the the, the trees, everything was made to, to to for me. But it was made to do a particular thing, and I don't take nothing out of this, what it's supposed to do. I'm grateful that I learned how to, I learned mindfulness. Mindfulness for me has become a way of life. You know, I don't have stresses, I don't have concerns, I don't have worries, you know. Every now and then I get tricked, I get caught up into something. But then I bring myself back and I realize that I don't have, I don't control anything. Everything is what it is, you know. I mean, it's hard for me to explain it, but everything is exactly what it is. It's not... When I was in prison, I didn't think I was going to ever get out of prison. So I act accordingly to how I was thinking that I wasn't going to never get out of prison. So I act up and I did things. But when I started... Losing people in my family that I know that loved me and cared about me. And I started learning about emotional intelligence. I started learning about victim impact, you know, how what I do, how it affects everybody and everything, you know. Um, life, life changed. It just changed. It just changed. And ever since I learned how to accept things, everything been good. I mean, I ain't that, everything been right because I'm on one path. And it's not the path that I choose for myself, but it's the path that God or the Creator or whoever, you know, set out for me, you know. I stay on that path. I try not to get off that path and try to make everything like I want it to be, the way I want it to be. Because when I do that, and it don't work out, that's when all the problems start. But when I when I live in forgiveness, acceptance and appreciation and gratitude every day, everything works out now, you know. It works out. Anyway, um, I don't know, but thank you anyway for letting me say that. You know. And again I deeply understand and appreciate everybody in this room, you know, and I deeply appreciate the fact that, you know, I know today that everybody in here is human, and everybody in here had their own thoughts, their own perception of things, their own who they are, you know, and uh, I can accept that, and I appreciate it. And I don't know, I'm just, 
I don't, I don't know if I came here. I wanted to say more about myself, but I, but it's just like I don't know. It's just like you know, it's meant for me to say what I'm saying right now, you know, because I can't think. You know, I can't think about what I need to say. I just think about what I need, what I need to be saying right now. So anyway, thank you. If I catch something later on, I raise my hand. <laughs> right. Thank you, Clay. That's wonderful. So, Robin, do you want to say something about your walk and your time in the Iron House? It's the Native Americans call the prison the Iron House. Thank you. I want to thank everybody here. I want to thank everybody here for being who you are and allowing myself as well as those that brought me here to be here with you. You know, I have had the opportunity to look around and connect with many of you. And the reason why I do this is because I want to feel that connection and I want to feel that comfort as another human being and we're on the same earth in the same time and we want the best for not only this present time but for the future generations. So I carry that with me. As I said, my name is Robin Guillen, but my name is actually Robin Peacemaker Guillen. And I say that grateful because I've had the privilege to know Jacques for a couple decades. In the very beginning, the embryonic stage of the prison system making some transformation to where human beings were given an opportunity to be themselves and to heal themselves. And that healing also took place with connecting with other people. And we have a mantra that hurt people hurt people and healed people heal people. And I'm a living testament to that fact. I came to the prison system in 1973, over 45 years ago. I committed a horrible act. I took a woman's life. She was 29 years old, and she had two young children. And I entered her privacy, her private world, and I took her life. And it not only affected her life, but who she was related to, her children, her two daughters, and it rippled into the universe in so many different ways that it, it's indescribable to explain. My point in sharing this with you is that I've been granted the opportunity to stay alive. After serving 45 years incarcerated and going through that incarceration experience from a 19-year-old and I was released when I was 65... It has shifted me. And the reason why I say this is because I had the opportunity to be with Jacques at least two decades ago. And there were seeds planted inside of me because he provided me some, a glimmer of hope. I don't know if any of you know what it's like to be in a dark room and you see a little light. And I sat in a dark room with that little bit of light for a long period of time, years. But that light began to grow when Jacques came in 
and introduced some of these principles, some of these ways of life, such as understanding my violence, not your violence, but understanding my violence, where it came from, where were the deep roots of it. And then as we moved on understanding my violence, I was able to transform that into emotional intelligence, developing some type of emotional intelligence where I could actually empathize with another human being and connect with them on their level, not my level, but where they were coming from, their heartache, their pain, their suffering. And then further down this path, being able to cultivate what is mindfulness. I hear these things, this mindfulness. What is this mindfulness? This is some new age concept, but I understand it in my old way that it is ancient. It's just having an awareness of the earth, the air, the water, the fire, and other human beings and how we all relate. Today, it's much more simplified for me than when I was younger. And then, most importantly, the fact to understand victim impact. What it must feel like on a very deep level to lose a loved one instantaneously for no reason. The sadness, the grief, and how that is carried on for many, many years. The tragedy of that. And I inflicted that on another human being and many other human beings, not only in the outside world, but inside the prison system. I want to offer up my apology, my sincerest apology for all the life givers in here, the women, for what you've had to suffer from men like me, a perpetrator of violence. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for what you had to experience what you had to feel, what you carry with you today. Because I feel it is not easy for you. And I can feel some of that pain. So I'm alive today to offer up this bit of my life to say that I'm sorry. And I made a commitment to be a peacemaker, to share whatever I need to share with whoever, to maybe create some type of healing process, a beginning. You know, when I look around and I I see each one of you, I can't help but know that you know, you have some alignment, you have some connection to what you believe, whatever it is. And that when we pray or when we meditate, we actually send things into the future. Because that's what we human beings strive to do is send some good things into the future, another way of life for the future generations. So I'm really grateful and truly blessed to be sitting here where I'm at and to have so many people, 
people that I have not even met in my life think of me in a good way, that I'm not a monster, that I have some spirit connection inside of me with them. Because these are the things that kept me going because that little light got bigger inside of me. And fear dissipated. I have no problem talking about my past as a young one as growing up because I realized that it was part of my healing process. It was part of my ownership. And it allowed me to get rid of that fear and to be able to be a service to other human beings. And I'm still learning it. So when I come into these uh, gatherings, I am truly humbled because for me, sitting in a sweat lodge has helped me heal in many ways. And this for me is a ceremony. This is a very spiritual, sacred ceremony to have a gathering of so many human beings from such a diversity. But we represent our entire Earth Mother and everybody upon her. All the suffering that is going on, each of us have had that. We know what it is like to suffer in our own way. So I'm just saying thank you to each and every one of you for who you are and what you have been able to provide for us in that system that gave up on us. But this man here, Jacques Verdun, he didn't give up. He saw the little light, that potential that we would come out here and make a difference. I could tell you many stories. Lives being saved in the outside world. People being healed, transformed. It's big, much bigger than any of us single human beings. But this consciousness that we gather here, that is a healing, such a big healing. Because what we learn when we're here together and then we move into our each individual world and we share that, other people listen and they can feel that because it's genuine. That's where the healing is at. So I want to thank each and every one of you. Big blessings on Mitakyasin. Thank you. So yeah, when, when the men uh, graduate, they graduate from offenders into servants because those are the opposites, right? And they're in caps and gowns even though some of them barely have a swimming certificate. But we honor their emotional intelligence achievements in the same way that you would honor the academic intelligence achievements. And then the San Quentin Choir helps us break the house down during the ceremony, and it's quite an event. And while I'm saying that, I'm remembering Jack came to one of these graduations, Jack Cornfield, and so did Luis Rodriguez, an author. And uh, during the ceremony, quite spontaneously, one of our more senior facilitators stood up and said, you know, I want all the men in blue, which is uh, another way to speaking for prisoners, because they're wearing blue, to stand up and take a moment of silence to honor the suffering that has been created. 
And it was potent to spend some time in silence that way. And then when Lewis was up, he said, you know, I know I was asked to read a poem to you. But then he turned to the man and said, I want to apologize to you for the lack of care that you may have had from your parents or step-parents, for the uh, addiction that may have been in your family system, for the violence that you maybe were exposed to as a kid. And it was just so potent. It's like nobody had ever done that, right? And it does refer to what Robin was saying about hurt people hurt people. It's like those eight words of hurt people hurt people, but healed people heal people sort of described the program that we've developed. And um, seven of the formerly uh, graduated servants are now back in the organization teaching their brothers and sisters what they've learned. You know, getting paid, going out, and sharing that information. That's really exciting. That to me is like sort of the the core piece of, of my excitement about what we're doing. Um, anything you, you want to add at this point? I'm absorbing this. You're just absorbing this, huh? Yeah, yeah, I, want, I would like to say something. Okay. Um, when I first went to the grip program, I used to think that I was all right. That's how messed up I was, right? Cause I really thought that it, you know, I was all right. I tell Jack all the time, I said, well, ain't nothing wrong with me. I come from a good family background. You know, my mother was a resident nurse. My father was a mechanic. You know, we had everything. And he kept telling me, he said, no, there's something wrong. Because you wouldn't be here if it wasn't something wrong. I said, well, I can't think of nothing, you know, because I didn't know, you know. And then the more we talked, the more I understood that I felt not abandoned, but I felt like I wasn't um, fit, you know. And I, and I realized that it started like when I was in kindergarten, and that's probably why I started going to jail so early at like age eight, because I didn't feel like I was, um, I didn't feel like I fitted in with society, you know. I didn't feel like I fitted in with what people thought was smart people. So I hung out with people that wasn't smart like me, you know. We really didn't know. And so it all started, like, for me in kindergarten. And I would have never figured that out if it wasn't for GRIP. If it wasn't that program GRIP, I would have never, ever thought there was something wrong with me. But then I realized that I was shy. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed at an early age. and Didn't know how to talk to nobody because I didn't know. I didn't understand. This is what I was feeling. This is what I was going through until I did the GRIP program and sat in the fire. I sat with my emotions, felt felt my pain. I sat there, I sat there, and when I used to meditate, I used to have these visions in my mind, and I stopped meditating because I didn't want to face it. But then once I sat in the fire and I accepted it, and I accepted who I was and how I became who I was, I was able to sit in meditation now with peace. No, I just wanted to add that right there because it came to my mind when he was talking. Yeah, sure. But um, and that's what really changed me. 
So now I meditate. I'm, I'm peaceful. I'm because I I accepted myself back then, and I understood. So I'm thankful and grateful to be at peace. I think I'm probably the first person they got out of prison without taking ownership of a crime because they knew I didn't commit the crime. But I think that it was meant for me to be where I was in order for me to be where I'm at today. Because everybody I grew up with is dead. All my friends, everybody, they, they, they dead, you know. Everybody I ran with on, on the outside is dead. But I'm still here. I'm healthy. I'm still got a little bit of sanity. You know. Tell them you're good looking too. I don't know about that part. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to take up time. But I just no, wanted no, to share no. that. Yeah. That's why you're here, brother. Yeah. I'm a better person today. And every day I'm striving to be even a better person. I never lived by myself. I never really did anything. You know, I never paid a bill. I never, you know, never did nothing that real human beings did, you know. But now, today, I'm experiencing all of it, and I'm so grateful for it, and I feel so happy, you know, and at peace. It's beautiful. Thanks to Grip yeah. and Jock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this right here. Yeah, he got his uh, <laughs> first... Uh, one bedroom apartment today. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that sitting in the fireplace is something we developed to to go towards the sort of imprints that are most often called traumas. Is kind of a buzzword right now. We don't call it trauma because the. It, it's a little too medical and treatmenty for us, so we call it original pain. And original pain comes from the idea of nobody gets to shuffle the deck. Everybody gets a hand of cards. Some of the cards are not the ones you would like to have. And the game is to learn how to show up, to learn how to face, and play the, to the best way you know how those particular cards. And in facing the original pain in a very, you know, it sounds, it could sound like kind of tough, like, you know, face my original pain. But it's actually a very compassionate practice that speaks of uh, the four strategies that Grip talks about. You can run, you can hide, you can fight, or you can face. So this one is about going to what's painful, painful in such a way that you might feel, I'm going to die if I actually feel this. That's not an exaggeration. And we take little bites so we can chew what we bite off. And we do it in a community. And uh, we begin to make friends with those very painful feelings. Because if we don't, there's this thing called secondary pain, which is the pain that emerges from not knowing how to deal with the original pain. 
and the men learn how to map all of that in a timeline. So that's an important part of what we do is to make our honey in that way. Anything you want to add to that? Sure. Yes, thank you. You know, when he speaks of uh, the original pain and, and the the depth of this process, you know, in the beginning what happens is, you know, first, you know, we build a safe container among men in that prison system in a classroom environment. And we become vulnerable. We become open and transparent with those uh, things that we have carried inside of ourselves for a very long period of time. And so when we begin to feel safe with another man, another human being, in a very uh, hostile environment, we open ourselves up, and in that vulnerability, we're able to share what it is, what it was like to be a child, to be an abused child in the very beginning, what it is like to have domestic violence around you, what it is like to have parents that were alcoholics or addicts in some capacity, and how that could possibly have influenced certain decision-making processes to, to numb some of the pain. So the original pain we, we explore on a very deep, deep level. But first, most importantly, we build that safe container that we're not going to be judged, we're not going to be made fun of outside of the environment, but we have a safe space where we can just put it all out there. And that's where the healing begins. Then, when we get into it, we fully experience it, and that's part of sitting in that fire. Because it's really challenging to sit with certain emotions. Fear, anger, sadness, grief, resentment, all of these things is very challenging for any of us as human beings. To sit, actually sit with them without fleeing from them. <coughs> disguising them with some type of uh, numb, numbing agent. It could be an alcohol drug, it could be a an addiction of the internet or whatever but we just sit with it and then once we get in it we burn clean that's part of the sitting in the fire process is we burn clean from it we recognize where it comes from what created it in the very beginning so we're able to peel that that guilt and that shame so we're able to move into the other side and once we move to the other side then we're able to develop our full potential our creative capacity as human beings. And it takes a significant period of time because the GRIP program is 52 weeks of two-hour sessions. And it's mandatory that you show up. And when you show up, you just can't sit in the back. You have to be able to speak and use your words because everybody's called on themselves to use their words because many of us and I can attest to this many of us were not able to use our words we had emotions we had feelings and all these different things going on but because of the uh, challenges in the environment the home environment we were shut down so we had to carry these things and we had to they manifested in so many different ways whether it was an addiction or throughout violence just to be able to release that 
built up, pent up energy. So these are the things that uh, are discovered in those 52 weeks. And it's a real methodical process. And it has taken, you know, this amount of time to be able to develop it in such a way that we could actually share the results, the fruits of these things. Because as I, I've been with Jacques for 20 plus years, so I have had the blessing to be able to experience that and learn what I've learned from Jacques and then pass it on to other people that were in that environment. And I was able to have the, the privilege to facilitate the process on a deep level. And part of my ability to do this allowed me to speak freely about myself that the entity called the Board of Prison Hearings allowed me the opportunity to be free from the prison environment and to actually live the life that I've been building for many decades. And I've had, I can tell you, I've been to colleges and universities, I have college degrees and all the whistles and bells of what is out here that people recognize. But the, the work is the inside work that there's no college or university that you can get what has been offered inside of the prison system through the GRIP program. Yeah, there's a uh, particular element that deserves a little attention and then we'll open it up. The work is done in what we call a tribe. And in the tribe, there's people of all different races, different ages, different creeds, different religions. And we won't teach the class until we have that level of diversity. And the tribe is based on something the Navajo Tine Indians spoke about when they describe an offender as he or she who acts as if they have no relatives. So an offender is he or she who acts as if they have no relatives. Meaning if you're not meaningfully bonded, then there's no accountability. And that lack of accountability gives a lack of orientation and often then creates a search of young men that have not been initiated and that go um, out and, you know, try out things violent behavior, drug addiction, you name it. So the tribe becomes uh, almost more important than the curriculum. You know, there's a 300-page curriculum, and it's, like Robin said, there's, there's decades of work that's gone into it. But the beauty and the strength of the tribe and the, the buy-in, you know. For example, when we start out, there's a ritual to find the name of the tribe. And the ritual is to write down on the board, on the whiteboard, how many years everybody has served. And so there's, in my tribe on Fridays in San Quentin, one of the 18 tribes we run on a weekly basis. Not just in San Quentin, but also there. Uh, there's 34 guys and, and together they've served 933 years. And so the tribe is called 933. And it's a bit like a gang, except we flipped it for constructive purposes. So guys get to feel they belong something to something. And, you know, they greet each other. Hey, man, 933, right? It, it, 
really speaks to them. And then also uh, what we calculate, amongst other things, is what we call the moment of imminent danger, which is abbreviated as ID. You have to ID that moment before it's over. It's the moment between anger and violence. Could be over very quickly, right? It's also the moment between craving and using. That also can be over before you realize. And lately we've added the moment between expectation and reality. I think uh, the NVC guy, what's his name again? Uh, Rosenberg, Marshall Rosenberg, speaks about uh, expectation as a premeditated resentment. Not bad, no? In prison slang, a setup. So uh, then what we calculate is how long were you in your moment of imminent danger when you crossed the line and you committed your, your violence? How long did that take? And often it's five seconds, 12 seconds, three seconds, a minute, five minutes, but not longer than that. So you have 933 years and 42 minutes and 12 seconds. And so we take a whole year to never lose a moment like that again. Or if you lose it, how to get back real quickly and apologize very well. So to create an environment in, of all places, a state prison, where there is a, a real understanding and respect for transparency, authenticity, and vulnerability, it's just one of the most amazing things to be part of. And to meet gentlemen like these has become such a blessing. It's completed me as a human being in ways that it's hard to imagine something else could have done. So I fall to my knees regularly in gratefulness for somehow being called in here. And uh, maybe with that we'll open it up for any questions you may have. I think, is there a process here where there's a mic that comes to you? Okay. Okay. There comes your mic. I'd like to thank both gentlemen for being here. Um, as the survivor of multiple rapes and the perpetrators were never prosecuted, I thank you for your courage to come and speak with us today and to offer your apologies. And I personally did not realize how much you who had been incarcerated suffered as well as those of us who were survivors in another environment. And I'd like to thank both of you, all three of you for being here mm -hmm. because it makes our connection even stronger. Wow. Thank you. Thank you, that's thank very you. meaningful. Thank you for speaking up. Because it's true, this doesn't work for the victims either. You know, the, the current system that we have 
Um, but it is powerful to see that the interaction, the dialogue between the men and the victims in many ways has something to offer. It's not for everybody, but for a surprising amount of people it is. It's like you have a bond when you bring in a life, when you have a child, and there's a bond when you take out a life. And like I said, not everybody engages that or speaks up. But there's a lot of healing waiting there. Over there, in the back. Uh, thank you, guys. Uh, can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I sense in, in both you guys a very deeply seized and a very deeply felt um, not overnight, but over a long period of time, forged in the bone and gristle of uh, prison life, an act of contrition, pure contrition. Not the kind of apologies that we see all the time from politicians or movie stars or what, but the kind that is between you and God. I sense that in, in your contrition, you're not even asking for forgiveness because you will get it or you won't. Some will give it and that's it. Uh, so this act of contrition is for you, as we said in the beginning, the transformation. It's about you and God. Uh, and it's out of that, that deep existential presence that I sense in both of you guys. You have been through it. Uh, I think you know the score. Like I said, uh, it's not like, oh, I'm a good boy now and everybody's going to forgive me. Uh, you're uh, awesome, guys, and extremely, uh, immensely courageous. Thank you. Yeah. You'd like to speak to that? See, you are already speaking to that. <laughs> Thank you for that. You know, I'm, uh, I'm humbled by what I'm feeling right now. And these, these tears that I'm experiencing, that's part of that uh, emotional intelligence that I've been granted and I've been able to experience because I understand that this is what other people feel when they deeply feel. And it's okay. It connects us. And what I've learned is this is part of my freedom. This is part of my freedom to be alive, to be genuine. Thank you. Sometimes we call it God's water over God's land. Over there. Yeah, I want to thank you both for being here, all three of you for being here. Um, I walked through that very, very heavy gate in, um, must have been 1990, taking in an H&I meeting in a 12-step. Um, and I remember thinking, like, why would you have, you know, a 28, 29-year-old woman go into this place, and what could I possibly say? And I'll never, I wish I could remember the man's name who told me that he had a window, that he had a view of Mount Tam, and he asked me if I had hiked it that day. And he asked how often I hiked it. And um, 
He had gone in the year before I was born. The most important thing was that he gave me a gift reminding me of what was waiting for me if I chose to not Mm -hmm. take a moment to be mindful. Mm -hmm. Or he reminded me of the type of people that I would continue to encounter in the way I was living. Mm -hmm. So I've kind of had this little period for a while now where I haven't really come in touch with how far I've come. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. nothing like carrying the message and being somewhere to hear it carried. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to thank you both for your service. Thank you for coming so far. Okay, in the back. Thank you. Thank you all for, for being here and for, for your work, for sharing this wisdom with us tonight. I have a question about the program. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're in that safe space, in, in the vulnerable space, and then the learning that you're, you're building... And as you go through the program, when you go back into the general population, what is that like? And how, what is the response from, from everyone else? Do they, do they sense something different? And, and Thank you. Glenn? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, with me... When I first started doing the program, everybody, because I knew everybody in New York because I'd been there so long, but everybody just knew that, nah, Glenn ain't doing this. Glenn, why you doing this right here? Why, you, know, you know, you ain't going to never get out of prison. You know, uh, you're going to be in prison, you know. But I didn't listen to it. I listened to my inner self because I knew what it felt good to me. And eventually, other people started seeing the change in me. And they started looking at me like, you know, differently. You know, they started looking at me like cheering me on, you know, want, want to see me. They see me happy, you know, finally, you know. Because um, I walked around always angry and mad. But once I started doing the GRIP program and mindful meditation, things got clearer for me. And people seen it. People seen People seen how happy I was. Even though I was in prison, I was happy. I went to the board 13 times. But on the 13th time I went, I knew, I knew, there wasn't no doubt in my mind that I was going home because I was already free. I was free. I had freed myself. You know, I was already free. And so when I went in the board, the people, they was like, already having a party, you know, they was having cake and eating cookies, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing, it was, it was, it was, and now, all my friends, they, you know, start doing programs, you know, they, they start, they seen the difference, they seen, because people, people didn't think I was going to ever get out of prison, you know, because mm-hmm. of the way I was living, the way, the way, you know, the things I was doing, you know, I wasn't never going to get out of prison. You know, and when people seen that I got out, it changed their attitude too. So it, through the grip program, I was also able to change other people mm-hmm. that was living like I was living. 
they seen my change, and then they wanted change. So they started going to mm-hmm. programs, too. You know, it's just... It's, the program is called Guiding Rage into Power. Yeah. So we redefine what power is, right? It's not violence. And so often when somebody speaks the truth, I will ask, you know, raise your hand if you realize this person is speaking from power. And so we begin to affirm a new definition of power. And the course book is called Leaving Prison Before You Get Out. You know, it's, it's not circumstance, it's my stance. And perhaps, you know, all my drama is happening to me so I can wake up, that is my attitude as a man's search for meaning. What's his name again? Victor Frankl. As Victor Frankl speaks about, like, they can take anything away from you except one thing. It's called the last human freedom. It's my ability to, res- to choose my response no matter what. So violence is learned. But guess what? Violence can be unlearned. And this culture, you know, needs to embrace that. We can't just be against police brutality without offering these guys some training. You know, we, we, we can't be defining violence whether you're 18 or 21 to have a fully automatic rifle. We can decide to radically own any experience of our reactivity as ours to deal with, as our personal work. All of us. It can be learned. And that's power. Over there. Up front here on the left. Um, Thank you both deeply for coming and speaking tonight and having the beautiful experience of cherishing a memory at the same time it's actually happening. Um, So thank you. Mm -hmm. And I have two questions, but I don't want to take up too much time. Um, I was wondering what your greatest challenge was in the program and how you, what your process was like, and also what your um, favorite part of life on the outside is. Mm-hmm. I'll give that a shot, Chief. Sure. The greatest challenge for me was to own all of the wrong and all the harm that I created in another life of other human beings. To be able to own it, to be able to speak on it, and to be able to feel it deeply, and to grieve that. To be able to empathize with that on a very uh, deep level. And it took some time. It was not just an overnight process. So overcoming that and healing from that gave me some uh, clarity to be able to own my deepest, darkest side and to bring it to light and to share it with others and know that that truth is a part of the healing process. And that's what I bring out here in this world with me. And the gift of that is to be genuinely loved out here and accepted and embraced 
I have so many human beings. And I developed some relationships while I was inside that I'm able to experience out here. So that's been the, the gift of the work for me. Anything you particularly like about being on the outside? Yeah, I just I, I like being able to get up every morning and go to work and walk down the street and look at the trees and feel the air in my face and just see the cars going in all directions and people rushing here and rushing there and just all the different colors. Because in prison, we only see like two colors, but from here, you see like red, green, everybody got different colored clothes on. You know, it's just, it's just, man, it's just, just grateful. Mm-hmm. Grateful to have eyes. <laughs> yeah, my biggest challenge was uh, accepting myself. Accepting myself and accepting what I did and how, you know, the way I lived, it just, just accepting my, just accepting my wrongs. Yeah. Okay. We thought, since tomorrow is voting day, we um, wanted to share this message, and this message is approved by the six million Americans with felony convictions that are not able to vote tomorrow. Six million. So vote as if your skin is not white. Your parents need medical care. Vote as if your parents need medical care. Your spouse is an immigrant. Vote as if your son is transgender. Your school, your temple, your church is being massacred. Massacred, yeah. Vote as as if your best friend is a PhD. PTSD veteran. Vote as if your brother is gay. Your land is on fire. Vote as if your land's on fire. Vote as if your house is flooded. Vote as if vote as if raising 2.7 million children that have a parent incarcerated is unacceptable. Vote having one in one ten. And 110 people in prison in America is unacceptable. Right. Again, this message is approved by 6 million Americans that have a felony conviction that won't be able to vote. Thank you very much. This is an unusual evening. We're sort of airdropped in here. Um, but it's been a, a very good feeling of feeling connected from where we sit with you as an audience. And thank you for caring. Oh, I'd want to say that uh, there's a chapter of the course book on mindfulness that sort of became its own little book. We have it for sale for $15. Feel free to uh, spend over that. We'll put it to good use. And, and yeah, we're, we're dreaming big. If, if you know of anybody that would want to help um, bring this to other places, let us know. Thank you.
just offer up this song. This song is for all life givers. Life givers are the women, our grandmothers, our mothers, our wives, our daughters, sisters, nieces, all of them. So I offer up this. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.